everyone, and welcome back to the Wellness Podcast. This is episode number 83. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Caitlin. Hello, everyone, and we have a special guest this week. We have Rebecca Giggs joining us, the author of an upcoming release book called Fathoms, The World in the Whale. We're very excited to have Rebecca on um, for this episode. A little bit of an intro to Rebecca is she is an award-winning author from Perth, Australia, she writes about how people feel towards animals in a time of ecological crisis and technological change. Rebecca's essays and articles have appeared in Best Australian Science Writing, Best Australian Essays, as well as in The Atlantic, Granta, The New York Times Magazine, and The Griffith Review. Um, and her topics span outside of whales. She also writes about uh, jellyfish swarms, how sea turtles fare in heat waves, the history of leeches as weather prediction devices, whether cows have friends and many other really cool essays and articles, which you can find on her website, um, in addition to the book that we're going to talk about. So welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a thrill to be with you. Thank you for making the time. Yeah. So um, are you currently in Perth or where are you in Australia right now? Right now, I'm on Wurundjeri country, people of the Kulin Nation, which is Melbourne, um, also known as Nam. Um, I'm here for the winter, so I'm in a very tall house next to the port. Um, and I feel like I suddenly have the Zoom background that I longed for all through 2020. <laughs> because the woman who owns the house is a, a really terrific writer. And so she's let, let me stay in this, this um, little library space. And I, I, I'm afraid I have to admit that this is not my collection behind me. Well, it looks like a great backdrop. So for those of you that have the video version of the episode... It looks like you're in a very prestigious office. Yes. <laughs> With some skulls and bones. Yeah. I feel kind of pseudoscientific. Um, but yes, I grew up in Perth. Um, Perth is, uh, you know, likes to talk of itself as being the world's most isolated capital city. Um, and I grew up um, in a part of the country that runs along the coastline. Um, most of development is really um, hard up against that parameter on the coastline. Um, and it means that to a certain extent, you, you grow up with an environmental sensibility informed by precarity because Perth has very risky freshwater um, access. Um, you have on one side of the nation, you know, the Indian Ocean, and you have the deepest trench in the Indian Ocean, the Diamantina Trench, which is filled with a kind of planktonic ooze that's been there since the Jurassic period. And then behind you, you have this huge plate rock called the Yilgen Craton. And there are minerals there that share birthdays with stones on the moon. So you're sort of in between deep time and deep space. Um, and I certainly think that that landscape really informed my preoccupations as a writer. It is a place that whales come and go past, um, but they're less present from the coastline. Like you don't see them in the way that you do on the east coast of Australia. Mm -hmm. If you're walking down by Bondi or Tamarama, the famous Australian beaches on the east coast of Sydney, um, you will find you'll be able to see humpbacks breaching um, during their migration. From the Perth coastline, they stay further out beyond Rottnest Island. So you actually have to get onto a boat if you want to go and see them. Gotcha. Would you consider yourself like a full-time writer? Is that like the right way to describe your day-to-day -day? or do you, do you teach as well? Is that what you're doing this winter? I am teaching a little, yeah. I teach for the Faber Academy. Um, I used to teach through universities, but in recent years I've been full-time freelance. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, Fathoms as you know, the project and some of the release information, where can people get the book? And then we'll get into some more um, detailed questions that Slater and I have for you um, for the episode. So um, Fathoms is your latest brainchild. Yeah. Is that what I would say? <laughs> I, should, I should show you, this is the paperback release oh, as well. Wow. Actually, um, I've just literally received a box of them in recent days. Oh, cool. So the copy that oh, you have cool. there is a hardback with the sort of rainbow color on it. And for audio uh, listeners, the, uh, the cover of the paperback is a, a blue cover with three whale tails sort of departing uh, stage right. Um, so yeah, I'm thrilled with the design. 
Awesome. Um, so where uh, you have like an Australian release, you have the audiobook, and then it's coming out. Is it coming out everywhere on July 20th? Is that what's happening? <laughs> so the, the hardback release has been out um, since mid-year last year in the States. Um, of course, the pandemic has meant that it's <laughs> less visible, I guess, yeah. because I haven't been able to do any in-person events. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's been available through independent bookstores and online retailers um, for nearly a year now. And now we're doing the paperback. So um, of course the price point is less as the paperback. Um, uh, but yeah, it's um, won some awards in the intervening year um, and had some really wonderful press, which has been just, you, yeah, a thrill because it's my debut book as well. It's the first one that I've produced. Cool. Yeah, well, I... I mean, we sort of had a little teaser with Nick Pyanson actually a few episodes ago. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, one of the things he said, he was like, well, it's really beautiful writing. And I had just barely started the book and I was like, okay, well, we'll see, we'll see how beautiful you can make whales sound. And I'm honestly, I'm very impressed. It's really incredible. Um, I've really enjoyed it. The, some of the things that you, just the way you explain things and make comparisons, it's, it's, it's really, I really enjoy it, so. Thank you. I loved um, spying on whales, Nick Penyon's Yes. Yeah. I, I reviewed that for The Atlantic. And there's a moment where um, he describes discovering this particular organ. Yeah. It's inside the head of a pilot whale. Um, and it's this odd, bristly, gelatinous baseball. I remember being like, my stomach was kind of turned at the same time <laughs> as I felt like there's this sort of macabre interest in what's going on inside whales. Yeah. And uh, Nick just knows how to flip that switch. You know, he's, he's a wonderful writer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really took from him, um, you know, the prehistory of whale evolution, which is so deeply fascinating and, and his particular passion. Yeah. Yeah, he does a great job of like making like it's telling the story of how science is done and that science is done by real human beings. Yeah. And yeah, we really were it, huge fans of the book. <laughs> he puts it at a good level of like it not it doesn't necessarily come from that like scientific background. He makes it so everyone can understand it. Mm. So it's really cool. And the new technology as well, you know, a lot of that <laughs> book is dedicated to um, things like the new generation of biologging tags, which are revealing um, just such a more fine-grained picture as to the habitats and lives of whales. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that stood out to me was that some whales um, are demonstrate right and left-handedness, that in their lunge feeding behaviour, they roll preferentially mm -hmm. towards the right or the left. And until we had a tag that was capable of not just showing where the whale was through GPS, like where is it in the world, but to show its own body rotation and movement, we never knew that. Yeah, really cool stuff. And the more we learn, the more questions we have, but I think that's one of the coolest things about whales. Mm. So. But tell me, so I grew up around humpback whales. That's mm -hmm. the species that we see most commonly from Australian coastlines. Sometimes we see right whales, southern right whales. Sometimes we see pilot-headed whales. There have been a couple of mass beachings. Mm -hmm. um, but what are, you, what are your whales, where you are from? What's, what's your species that uh, you see most of all? Yeah, I originally grew up in Oregon, um, so a little bit further north than where um, Slater and I work together. And the Pacific Northwest, like iconic species, is a southern resident killer whale. Um, they are sighted off the Oregon coast, but not super often. Um, but we have a summer population of gray whales. So if I were to go whale watching at home, it's mostly gray whales. Sometimes other species will come through, but um, that's kind of the staple. But then down in Monterey, um, where Slater and I met and worked together a lot, where I've spent the early part of my career. Uh, it's one of the best places in the world to see a huge variety of, of whales. You could see the world's smallest and the world's largest marine mammal in a four-hour trip. You could see a southern sea otter and a blue whale in the same yeah. half-day trip. So um, of lots of humpback whales as a staple, but gray whales all winter. Just mix in all kinds of dolphins, killer whales, blue whales. It's really an incredible place. Do you know the story from Eden, the killer whale story from down on the south coast of Western of Eastern Australia? Have you heard of the Eden killer whales? I think I think so, but I 
there's Might a very to jog my memory <laughs> yeah no so this is um uh, a story that i actually ended up on the cutting room floor for fathoms so you're getting the uh you're getting the hits from the from the <laughs> Things. Um, so in this particular part of Australia, um, Indigenous hunters used to um, collaborate with killer whales to drive smaller whales into an mm. enclosed bay that they'd then spear from the land. And when white colonising whalers came to that part of Australia, they essentially um, leveraged that relationship by um, paying a lot of Indigenous people to work on the whaling ships initially. But um, forging this, yeah, forging this connection with the killer whales. Um, and they would uh, use them in the same way, I guess, that um, British mounted hunters use beagles to mm -hmm. drive other whales up onto the sand. And they would reward them by cutting off the lips and the tongue of the whale that they would kill. Um, so it was known um, colloquially in the area as the law of the tongue, that if you took a larger whale and then you um, you had to give a reward to um, the killer whales. It gets slightly more Baroque uh, in the typical tall tales of fishermen of the region in that people claim to have particular allegiances to single whales. Um, and at one point, one very famous whaler from the Davidson family company died in, uh, was drowned in the area. And it's said that the killer whales um, found his body and returned it to his parents. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting um, part of history, particularly because there aren't that many killer whales there now. Um, yeah. You know, it was, um, they were brought close to the coast by the whaling activities and of course all the effluent that's coming out of the triworks and bits of fat and meat and all of that is drawing in these predatory whales um, and then after whaling finished there in sort of the 1920s um, uh, yeah they, they didn't come so close to the coast any longer oh i see it's kind of like um the orcas and uh the the whaling ships up in alaska right the indigenous people used the, to hunt the narwhals. Mm -hmm. They and were also, used, the, the killer, they were working together mm -hmm. with the orcas to, and they would leave them with one of the narwhals, I believe. Ah, oh, interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, there's actually an active fishing industry right now with bottlenose dolphins in South America. I, for, I think it's in, it's, I think it's in Brazil. Um, mm -hmm. And the fishermen wade out and have like throw nets. And so the dolphins will herd the fishermen, herd the fish towards them. They throw the nets and then they, the fishermen will take some of the catch out and feed it to the dolphins. And yeah. it's a actively like studied um, fishery right now. I know a few people that are working on projects related to that. It's a pretty interesting relationship to have. Yeah. With, uh, and sort dolphins. of towards what we see now, which is this conflict between, you know, the, the fisheries industry mm -hmm. and the free lives of whales like yeah. increasingly we see entanglements as a result of nets that have yeah. been um, inappropriately disposed of or um, legacy waste from the fisheries industry turning up inside whale stomachs so mm -hmm. um, yeah those kinds of anecdotes are interesting because they point to another way to be yeah exactly like totally flips around the the dolphin safe tuna idea yes. you know like there is a way to catch the fish with the dolphins as <laughs> A mutual thing <laughs> yes so. indeed yeah 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 <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about um fathom so it's sort of like this starts with this encounter with a stranded whale is sort of like the crucible that sets you off on this this project um had you sort of been brewing this idea for a while or was it just like this epiphany moment after it, that encounter with the whale on the beach so yeah, there are two inception points for the book. Um, the first is that some years ago, I helped out at a whale beaching not far from my home in Perth. We had a yearling humpback draw up um, and a yearling's obviously not a full grown whale. So it was about 12 meters long. And initially it had stranded on a sandbar and myself and a couple of other people overseen by some wildlife officers managed to get it off the sandbar um, and it, swam out but it returned within a matter of hours and it stranded much higher up on the beach the second time round. So it seemed inevitable that it would die. There was no way to return it back to the ocean safely at that point. 
And a huge crowd came down to see this whale. As I said before, they tend to stay on the other side of Rottnest Island in Western Australia. So it's a huge wonder when this, you know, massive animal from the sea actually draws up near to an urban beach. People brought down their children. They brought down their dogs on leashes. They um, sat around, you know, really while the animal was suffering and dying on the sand. Um, but yeah, there was an atmosphere of macabre carnival down there. Um, and I got talking to people about why they thought whales might strand. Some people told me that they thought that this whale was particularly skinny and maybe it hadn't been fed well by its mother. Others said that it could have something to do with plastic pollution or the Japanese whaling program down in the Southern Ocean. One man even said to me that he understood whale beachings were connected to falling stars. Um, although once we started talking about it, it was hard to say how, you know, were whales <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, would they did they navigate by the cosmological sphere or did they mistake night for day when, when stars started to fall at any length? I got really interested in these questions of the ways in which when something as, um, tragic as a whale beaching takes place, we wrap in all these other stories about our relationship to the environment, be it pollution and the feelings of culpability we have there, or be it the history of whaling in the form of Japanese whaling program. Um, but it wasn't until some years later, when I read a short news story in an, an, a magazine about a second whale that had stranded not far from um, on the coast of Spain that I started work on the book. So this second um, whale beaching, uh, sperm whale, obviously, you know, the big blocky head, the classic whale that you see on the front of every cover of Moby Dick. <laughs> um, it was dead when it uh, already washed up. Um, but it wasn't far from Almeria, which is very famously a big um, greenhouse district in Spain. In fact, it's the um, image that you see in the opening scenes of Blade Runner, they're coming down over these greenhouses, just like hectare after hectare of them. Um, uh, it's quite an apocalyptic sort of environment. The stomach of the whale, when biologists cut it open to try to understand um, uh, what had killed it, contained this stupendous medley of synthetic objects. It had bits of stuffing from a mattress, it had bed springs, it had an ice cream tub, but most notably, it had within it a entire greenhouse, all bundled together, bits of tarpaulin, ropes, flower pots, all in one bolus. And I remember reading about that and, and going and looking at the inventory that was in the scientific paper and just thinking, you know, if I were to try to put that into a novel, into a fiction story, people wouldn't believe it. It's too heavy handed because here you have this icon of the 1980s environmental movement whales, save the whales, and it's consuming the metaphor that we use to describe climate crisis, the greenhouse, the greenhouse effect. And it just seemed like such an uncanny juxtaposition of these two moments, you know, mm -hmm. the hopefulness of the 80s and where we are now in the 2020s. Um, and so really that's where I set off from was thinking, I want to write a book that's about the stories people tell about whales, but also about the changing conditions of the ocean and what sort of lives we owe to animals in the wild now. Not looking ahead and saying, you know, what's the great existential risk of climate change, but in a much more present tense way, looking at how animals experience us now. Thank you, that's, yeah, awesome. So I do have kind of piggybacking off of that. What, I mean, what is it about whales that just gets people so like, I don't know, you hear so many wild stories when you bring up whales or like everybody has a whale story. You're just like, what, what, that's a question I've been trying to answer for years for myself is like, what is it about whales that gets people so intrigued? I guess is the right word. I don't know if you even yeah. have an answer for it. You, you touch on it a little in the book, but you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a few ways to answer that. Um, I think there is something, you know, the, I, I briefly talk in the book about um, the way in which the human brain is structured to classify the natural world and that there are actually regions of the brain that are dedicated to creating taxonomies of animals. 
we know this because people who have had injuries to that part of the brain have ceased to be able to classify animals. And so they can't tell the difference between a mouse and a toaster or more riskily between the bed sheets and a salad. It means that they really fail to nourish themselves because <laughs> they don't know what to eat. Um, so there is a part of the brain that's dedicated to divvying up the natural world. Whales are obviously such a signal species in that context because they are the largest animal on the face of the planet. And I think a lot of our storytelling kind of leaps from the fact that, um, you know, even if you live in the interior of a country, in a city, in a high rise building, you've probably heard about a whale. They're the letter W in every children's alphabet book. And we have them in lots of our myths. Um, in lots of our sort of foundational tales of religion. So whether that's, you know, Leviathan <laughs> um, in the Bible or otherwise. So there's that aspect of it, that maybe there's something sort of, we're, we're neurologically prone to seeing specialness in that distinctive species, the largest animal. But I think ultimately the reason that they're so compelling to people now is that they are simultaneously familiar and unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think of them as being brainy, warm-blooded, social, like us having forms of communication. They have brains that are partitioned into hemispheres that have some of the same neuron structures as humans do. And so I think we sort of think of them as being, um, you know, in some ways like human beings. On the other hand, they're also arrayed with a panoply of senses that are nothing like what we live through and experience the world through mm -hmm. you know whether that's you, the, the way in which they're so exquisitely attuned to sound um, and different species to different degrees but we think of something like the beaked whale species which spend a lot of time down in the dark in the deep oceans which may in fact um, effectively see through sound using rebounding sound waves a kind of biosonar to sperm whales, which scientists are saying now are very likely to have some sense of magnetic fields on the planet. And that that's how they use, that's how they navigate in the open ocean with this sense of, um, uh, of the magnetic fields. You know, what must that feel like? Uh, what must that sense actually, to have that sense seems so strange. And I think it's kind of similar with the octopus, you know, it's this combination of um, intelligence, familiarity, and also some senses that are on the very periphery of our understanding. I just think that's a real sweet spot for imagination. Yeah, that's a good I agree. about it. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about it, it's like, how does a humpback whale go from Alaska to Hawaii in a straight line with no no uh, street signs? <laughs> unless, <laughs> yeah. there's, unless there's fish down there holding signs that we don't know about. It's just like... <laughs> And in so the dark and in storms, yeah. no landmarks. Maybe yeah. Finding Nemo yeah, was right. The turtles are like, let's get on the EAC and just go like it's a freeway. Exactly. That, and that is it. They, they probably feel the current so much stronger than we do or, you know, sense the current and just know which way to go. But it's still just, it's an amazing feeling yeah. when you think about it. And you have to wonder, given that they're such long-lived animals as well, whether they have you know, a portfolio of memories or even a kind of social exchange of memory to some mm -hmm. extent that speaks to them of the changing environment. I mean, yeah. particularly the East Australia current is so warm now and getting closer to the coast every year. We're seeing manta rays turn up around Tasmania, like tropical species coming right down to the very bottom of Australia, almost mm -hmm. kind of towards Antarctica. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the whales obviously are booming over there they're really like they're actually having a baby boom their populations are as large as they've ever been really um but whether they have any apprehension of change in their environment i, I it wouldn't surprise me to learn that they did um though of course this is all speculative how much can you get yeah. inside the head of a whale yeah i mean there is some evidence to support both those things in in blue whales they've had some science in the north pacific showing that a lot of their foraging um, locations is based on memory and then uh, the Hal Whitehead paper that came out not that long ago about sperm whales and them socially transmitting information about how to avoid whaling ships um, when whaling ships were still mostly wind and human powered 
Um, yeah, and the sperm whales are just, I mean, if ever there was, a, you know, in terms of intelligence, in terms of sociality, I mean, they're the real um, exception. They're, they're, they're just, from all accounts and reading Hal Whitehead's fantastic work, um, they're the really intelligent ones, definitely. Mm. Um, yeah, our humpbacks are brainy, but probably to the extent that a cow is brainy, which is not to say that a cow isn't brainy, but <laughs> um, yeah, we can also, in the wake of the new age movement in the 90s, sort of over, overstate their, their um, braininess as well. Mm. <laughs> so, um, oh, oh sorry. Ahead, you go. Okay. Did you travel to a lot of places when writing this book? Yeah, I did two research trips um, initially. Uh, when I started the book, I had quite a small advance, actually. So part of my travel was sort of limited by what I could get to that was near to me and was feasible to do while I was working full time as well at that point. Um, but I did a trip to Eden on the south coast of um, uh, New South Wales. Um, I went down there to um, examine the strange history of Australian whale bathers people who like to sit inside the carcasses of dead whales because they believed that it would cure rheumatism or moodiness, you know, and probably what we recognize today as depression. So this was this weird kind of whale cure that sprung up um, in the 19th century in that part of Australia. Wow. Um, and then I also traveled to Japan. Um, I did two kind of longish trips to Japan. Um, I really wanted to go there to understand um, I suppose to look back at my own cultural framing and see how ideas of animal charisma can also be kind of imperialist as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to kind of go and, and, you know, understand the place of the whale in Japanese culture. Um, but yeah, also use that to sort of unsettle what was all too intimate and familiar about my own framing when it came to the topic. Um, so really I was going there to sort of, um, yeah, disrupt some of my own positioning, I guess. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in Japan, you know, it, um, I had gone there expecting to some extent that whales would be perceived as just another kind of seafood. Um, uh, yeah, Australia and Japan have a long history of um, contestation around the scientific whaling program down in the Southern Ocean. It's ended up in some of the international courts. Mm -hmm. um, so Australians are very um, negative about the Australian, uh, the Japanese whaling program. I consider it barbaric. At any length, what I found was that actually the whale is regarded as a charismatic animal um, in many different places for many different reasons. There are whale temples where whales are um, observed and, and where some whale bones are buried. Um, there are amazing whale stories. There are traditions of eating whale meat, um, some of them um, that have a degree of ceremony around them that are um, ritual. There are others that are uh, much more prosaic, but still speak to the ways in which Japan was able to recover after the Second World War because after really the sort of like pelagic whaling, the ocean whaling um, came about because they were encouraged to repurpose their naval fleet after the Second World War um, by the Americans, in fact. Uh, and that's what they did. They turned to um, open ocean whaling with those same ships. And it was at a time when the agricultural sector was completely decimated. The Japanese people had starved and had many nutritional deficiencies. So eating whale meat has come to represent self-sufficiency and recovery on the part of that nation state. And that's an equally compelling story as the story of the whale as this icon of environmentalism and you know this animal that brought together the global community. It's not to say those two stories are in a hierarchy. Um, so yeah, I, it was a really interesting trip to Japan. I got to go to Shimonoseki and see the Nishin Maru, the big um, factory ship and to see all the whalers processioning off the factory ship for an award ceremony um, to celebrate the end of their of their whaling season. Um, so, yeah. Interesting, very interesting. Um, 
in the book, you also talk a little bit about your your childhood and like going to the Western Australia Museum. Is that what it's called? Um, you have, right. There was the yeah. blue whale skeleton. And so were you always like a nature kid, a whale kid? Like, was that kind of like a normal thing? Yeah, I mean, I had a good saltwater childhood. Like um, I grew up, my mother's from the Southwest. Um, so she comes from a part of Australia where there are a lot of um, mass beachings, in fact, of pilot whales, um, some approaching in the hundreds. Um, you know, there was a, I think the largest one was about 380 whales, um, uh, but there've been strandings in the hundreds in recent years. Um, so, and that's also a place where whaling in Australia ceased in the 70s. It was the last whaling station that we had. Um, so my mum remembers seeing whales actually brought up onto the fencing desks, like on the decks rather, um, by the Albany whaling station. Australia was the last English speaking nation to cease whaling in 1977. Um, so yeah, I kind of grew up, I guess, with that in my familial history. Um, I had a passion for nature when I was a kid, definitely, although a lot of that was derived from museum visits and library visits. And, um, you know, my family are not really big hikers or, um, yeah, they were always working too hard for that. Um, yeah, so that's where that interest come from. But the West Australian blue whale skeleton was always such a magical um, icon of the state. Like nearly everyone from the state has a story about encountering that specimen. It used to be contained in the atrium of the museum and you had to kind of work your way up to it, going through these halls of taxidermy and bristling like antelope hung from <laughs> stair stairwells. Um, and yeah, to a kid who had never seen a living whale at that point it seemed to me like an imaginary animal because parts of it were missing for one thing like there's no tail on the skeleton because of course mm -hmm. the tail is cartilage so you're not going to have that preserved it has all those long tipped kind of witchy finger bones that are where the fins are um the skull is you know looks kind of rodent like but on a massive scale it's just narrow and long and has the big canopy of the palette as well um and yeah to me it felt like as real as the luck dragon from the never-ending story it was <laughs> just a really compelling um uh yeah compelling kind of object um so that stayed with me for a long time um and that became a way in the book towards writing um, about the animals that we celebrate and preserve in museums and those that we overlook, um, and also the kinds of history that we preserve and those that we lose. Because of course, the whale in the museum was presented as this part of natural history, you know, it belonged to the pantheon of the animal kingdom, it had an evolutionary history, um, but nothing was said of its social past. And in fact, the way that the specimen was collected was quite interesting because it may or may not have actually been speared to be brought to the museum when it was beached and suffering by um, down by Bustleton. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a collaboration um, between two Japanese fishermen who helped um, par away the flesh and preserve the bones and um, an Australian uh, curator. So here is this moment of like Japanese and Australian scientists collaborating for the purposes of um, natural history research. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of been wiped from the documentation around the whale. Yeah. I think a lot of people also just don't realize like how difficult it is to process a whale skeleton. <laughs> like, imagine, yeah. yeah, like a lot of times like museums when they hear of a stranding, if they want a fresh skeleton, they'll like put in a pitch to uh, whoever's doing the necropsy and then figure out how they're gonna naturally let it decompose enough just to transport the bones and like some places they'll bury the whale um, mm. if it's a small animal sometimes you can submerge the carcass and have like nature do it but yeah it's like it's it's kind of crazy to process something so big yeah. in new south wales they actually have whale graveyards in the middle of the national parks which they don't let anybody know exactly where they are but 
expressly for that purpose to bury carcasses and let them deteriorate until funding becomes available to mount a whale or to to examine it but yeah the the perth museum whale at the time that i was writing fathoms the museum had actually been pulled apart and was being moved to a new building which has just opened in recent months um but so during that time the blue whale skeleton was kind of packed up like a piece of flat pack furniture and put mm -hmm. in plastic sheeting and i went to see it in the welsh pool warehouse and there was still oil coming out of the bones mm -hmm. you know despite the fact that wow. that specimen was over 100 years old mm -hmm. um like kind of vegemite i don't you don't have that marmite um, you know what it is though yeah <laughs> um and you could see it in the plastic sheeting so i mean the the amount not just of initially um mounting the specimen but then it's constant upkeep is, is yeah. huge hmm. how big is that blue whale do you know is it a big the one? one in the Perth Museum is a pygmy blue whale, uh -huh. so it's not huge. Um, okay. Yeah, it's not kind of 30 meters. I would say, gosh, I'd have to look it up on the museum site, but it, it would be 15, 17, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Still pretty big, a little bit bigger than a humpback, full grown humpback whale. Yeah. There's um, lots of museums count blue whales as a centerpiece of their collection, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's an actual specimen or the sound of it, or in some cases they'll have a, um, you know, a fiberglass replica. <laughs> the yeah. Natural History Museum in London has a, a fiberglass replica that yeah. um, they had to make some alterations to once they learned that actually blue whales don't look as they imagined to. <laughs> And there's a story about, um, you know, at the time that it was being put together, um, the workers who were responsible for setting up that particular hall of taxidermy as well, um, used it as a smoking room. So they used to get inside the whale and have a cigarette. Oh um, my gosh. <laughs> Slater actually has some, uh, it's drone footage, right? In what? one of the museums for like one of their main exhibits at where in Australia? It? No, and is it in New York or where? Uh, is I think it? it's the Natural History Museum of New York, I believe. I actually have, um, I actually had a photo on the cover of. See, I don't remember if it's Western Australia Museum or if it's Australia Museum. I think there's two, right? Correct. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yep. I'm sure there's the a National million, Museum but... is in Canberra, um, okay. a much more conservative institution and widely. Uh, yeah, a much more conservative museum. Yeah, I had, I had, they reached out. I had a photo on one of their magazine covers. Um, Brilliant. Whale. Yeah, oh. that was cool. It's a really I wish, cool I, photo. I used to have it in my whale. desk and I can't find, I was going to show you it, but I can't find it. Yeah. My wife's got it packed away somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah, it's um, like a, a whale, like, I don't know. Was it just like coming down for a head slap or something? It's like yeah, all the way they up all to the peck that one they yeah. were all feeding and that one just decided to chin slap instead of feed yeah. with so the it's rest like of a them. beautiful shot of like the ventral pleats and the barnacles and you can see both eyes and it's like really nice evening lighting it's a really really cool photo i yeah. saw a wonderful one a few days ago of a humpback that had completely breached out of the water and they've just managed to catch it as it's coming down belly first but it's sort of maybe the whole body is out of the ocean and it's parallel to the ocean. Yeah. And the way that it's been framed, it almost looks like it's sort of a hovercraft, like it's moving forward. <laughs> like it's, it's levitating. One of those very viral <laughs> photographs that uh, you can imagine whales have suddenly learned to fly. Yeah, that's one of the shots I want to get, like, because the young whales do it more where they kick their tail yeah. up as they're breaching. And so they'll get all the way parallel to the water surface. Mm. Um, I've seen it a few times, but I've never actually had my camera out when it's happening. Tim Waters, who I introduce, who I interview in the book, a very um, wonderful wildlife photographer, told me that um, he had seen an amazing shot where someone had. Now I think it was like it was part of a scientific study. So they had a biologging tag on the animal, but they probably had a camera on that tag as well. So literally, they got the breach. Um, the the footage is shot from literally the perspective of the belly of the whale so as it rushes out of the water and then comes down um so you partially see that ventral underside but you also see the ocean um yeah there's i mean there's so many new ways to photograph whales <laughs> yeah. some of them sort of you know more or less taxing to the animals um yeah i think every time i see interesting photography on instagram of of 
marine mammals. I'm conscious of, you know, is this been taken with a really noisy drone that's distressing the animal or is it, you know, what's, what's the conditions in which these photographs have been taken? Um, yeah, I just have to be a bit conscious of that. So I understand that your book has won some awards. What does that mean for a writer? Gosh, uh, I mean, it was thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> um, and much more than I'd ever hoped for. Um, uh, yeah, and particularly last year because, um, you know, it was challenging to have a new book out and to put so much work into something and then not to be able to cross the finish line in the way that you had imagined, which was festivals and seeing readers and signings. Um, so the awards were more meaningful in that context, I think. Um, there's some stuff that's purely material. So if award has a cash prize with it, then that might buy you some extra writing time, um, particularly if you're starting a new project that's very green and needs a bit of, you know, reflection and, and quiet introspective work, then um, award money just is fantastic for getting you through that patch of time. And the recognition obviously is important. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Awesome. It can sometimes feel a little pressuring to the extent that it sets expectation. Like, um, mm -hmm. and I know other writers for whom um, awards have kind of made them jumpy to some extent. I, I don't feel like that, but um, yeah, I can see. I can see sometimes glimmers of it. Cool. Well, congratulations. Yeah, we don't. We don't know a lot about writing, so we're like, it's won an award. That's got to be a good thing, right? <laughs> is, is this the on the front, the Andrew Carnegie Medal? Is that one of them? Yeah, so that's the American Library Association Gold Medal for nonfiction. Um, okay. It's the, I don't know that it's the first time a natural history book has won, but it's only the first time a, an Australian has won it. Um, oh, cool. So I'm really happy about that. It's also a, an award geared to getting the book into libraries. Um, so that's really helpful. Nice. Um, and then it was uh, shortlisted for the Pen America um, E.O. Wilson Science Writing Prize as well. Awesome. Um, yeah, which uh, was yeah was was wonderful to get to meet all the other writers on the shortlist and get a bit uh, of heat and light out of that as well. Oh, good! Congratulations. I definitely think it's uh, it's deserving. It's a really wonderfully written book. Um, we have maybe just that, oh go ahead oh no I was just going to say the hope is that that aspect of it you know really working on the polish of it and trying to make it a really lyric um, narrative book means that some of the heftier science like you know studies to do with whales as carbon capture and storage and plankton productivity or um, uh, yeah some of the history of whaling which can be really visceral. Um, that you bring audiences along into that it doesn't feel as heavy as it might otherwise yeah definitely. um yeah so it's a book i mean I, the other thing is i'm not a scientist i don't have a scientific training i'm science curious and i try to be science literate um but that's not my expertise and so i wanted to write with that scientific heart but also um you know be interested in the emotional experience of encountering a whale nice so oh, you captured you, it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> what would you say was maybe like the hardest part about writing it? Was it trying to get that juxtaposition just right? Or was it some of the, the research and, you know, more of like the groundwork type stuff? The hardest part of it was that initially the project was shorter and more um, focused on the anthropogenic change in the oceans. Um, so the history of whaling that is in the front of the book kind of came in quite late in the picture. Um, and that was a lot of research to process. Um, so that was a challenge. Um, but my editors were wonderful in kind of guiding me through that. Um, yeah, uh, you know, there were <laughs> patches of dark time where I was trying to figure out how to structure the thing. Um, that took a while to come as well. And I think in part, that's just because of my training, you know, just getting started as a as a narrative nonfiction writer. Um, 
Yeah. All right. And then I guess the other question I would have is what surprised you the most while writing the book? What surprised me the most? Um, well, that bit of research that looks at the ways in which whales are connected to the chemical composition of the atmosphere was really yeah. stunning. Yeah. Like I had always imagined whales obviously being part of a marine food web. You know, they're, they're undersea animals, they feed under the water and when they die, they become this bewitching launching pad for all these undersea organisms. Um, but I had no idea that um, because of the way that whale feces um, fertilizes the growth of plankton, that they were in some ways connected to the discharge of oxygen through, um, I guess, accelerating the growth of plankton mm -hmm. and therefore yeah. could be considered a kind of contributor to, um, uh, yeah, to carbon offset. Yeah. which um was phenomenal to learn that that really blew my mind yeah that's super cool i just talked about that on the boat today with my passengers so yeah, <laughs> yeah. and i think well, there'll be more and more science in that space you know like we have um as as environmental crisis begins to catalyze and accelerate um there's a risk that we see animals purely as victims of environmental change as opposed to part of the solution mm -hmm. yeah definitely So I actually have another question. Have you, since writing this book, have you gone out to see whales at all? Or have you seen any whales uh, after it's been out? No, I haven't. Um, I only got back, so I got stuck in the UK last year. You may have heard that Australia pretty much closed its borders yeah. because of the, um, the COVID issue. Um, so I was supposed to come back to Australia in June, but I couldn't get back in until July. And then I had to go through a medical quarantine facility it's run by the military here. Um, so it was a real process to get home. Um, and yeah, since then I've been, I've spent some good time at the beach. I've definitely seen dolphins, um, but I haven't been out to see the whales yet. So um, huh, well, you have to go. September, <laughs> October, we'll start to see them coming back down the East Coast. Um, so that might be a good moment. Yeah. Yeah, you should do it. So sort of one final wrap up question, I guess, to bring it all together. Um, where do we go from here with our relationship with our oceans and with and with whales like where do we you know we the book does a great job of talking about how all these things oppose and come together and fall apart but like where how do we move forward where do we go from here yeah i mean this book is written two steps back from any specific activist agenda and there's a reason for that because i didn't want to give people a prescriptive set of steps you know you've suddenly found a reason to care for the health of our oceans this is what you should do mm -hmm. i do think for each of us you know that kind of action is going to be dependent on the resources we have available the particular privilege that we grew up with the networks that we have um and our talents as well because if you don't act in the service of your talents you're going to burn out mm -hmm. so my advice is always that if you have felt moved to get more involved in the health of our oceans then you know you you do a thorough accounting of all those things you try to find a part of the problem that is local to you that you could see meaningful change in within five years give yourself a time frame mm -hmm. and that actually calls on your talents so if you're someone who's like just a queen at spreadsheets like that's what you do then give that to a bit of time working on the books for an NGO, mm -hmm. you know? If you're someone who spends a lot of time outside, well, maybe cleaning up plastic litter from the beaches is going to be the right thing for you and give you a sense of process, like mm -hmm. of uh, make, making an impact. But ultimately, where I arrive at the end of the book is that a whale is a wonder, not just because it's the largest animal in the face of the planet, but because it has the capacity to augment our moral feeling it calls us to care for things that aren't just in our sphere of action you know that that are distant that are remote that are magic to us to some extent because we encounter them so infrequently mm -hmm. and in the years to come we're going to be asked to express empathy for all kinds of animals for future generations for people living in countries on the equator we're going to be asking ourselves a lot of that question how do I care for something that I've never met? How do I mm -hmm. care for someone that I don't know? 
And I just think that the, the whale is like this wonderful example of the ways in which people have cared despite that lack of context, contact. Um, mm -hmm. And even as the oceans are sort of changing and the extent of our reach seems massive, you know, that the things from the kitchen can end up in the belly of a sperm whale is just kind of humiliating and mind blowing. But it also suggests that our capacity to change that, to prevent that from happening is much more local. You don't need to campaign against whaling ships. You don't need to be, you know, marching on the streets. You can change things that are proximate to you, things mm -hmm. like your plastic usage. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I hope that is to some extent a hopeful message. Yeah. But ultimately as well, I don't think you get to be hopeful until you make yourself useful. Yeah. And no book is going to make you hopeful in a way that actually finding a meaningful way to contribute is. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that, that really hope comes from the doing. Um, yeah. Awesome. I like so, that. Yeah, I do too. Find a, find a way to get plugged in and, and do something where you feel fulfilled. Mm, so, yeah. Cool. Um, so Fathoms is out already for people that want to get the book, whether they want to do audiobook or a hardback. And mm -hmm. then paperback comes out on July 20th. And this episode will be out just a few days ahead of that. So um, I'm assuming it's sort of like wherever books are sold kind of thing. Wherever good books are sold, your independent <laughs> bookstore, booksellers are wonderful. Um, the audiobook is read by Sharemi Asirio. Um, she's a, a wonderful um, uh, audio book creator you won't have like the heavy Australian accent <laughs> that is I, I didn't read it um, uh, but she's done a terrific job with the audiobook um, ebook as well so um, yeah she awesome. be too hard to find mm. yeah well thanks so much for joining us and uh, we look forward to our listeners reading uh, the book or listening to it however they want to consume the content and uh, we're so glad that um, you had someone reach out to us because we were very excited to to read it and to get a chance to chat with you. So um, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. So we'll do a little wrap up here. Thank you to our um, Patreon subscribers. We always appreciate uh, all of your support. You'll be able to see the video version of this and we'll have a little extra bonus content too for you um, that we'll post aside from the episode with Rebecca. And um, if you follow us on social media, it's at, at Whale Nerds. Is there a place where people can get plugged into Fathoms on social media or with you? Through my website, yeah. So it's Rebecca Giggs, that's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-G-I-G-G-S.com. Awesome. Perfect. And, uh, do you want to do a secret whale of the week, Slater? Do you have a favorite whale? I love the strap-toothed beaked whale. There we go. Um, oh! Perfect whale of the week. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> They're the ones that yeah. the males have these tusks yeah. that kind of grow out of their lower jaw. And they wrap around their upper jaw as they age. So the animal yeah. has to get more and more agile in the smaller squid that it chases because it can't open its mouth so much wider. Um, yeah, it becomes yeah. a problem for them. Awesome. So if you get to the end of the episode, you know what to do. You comment strap tooth beak whale on our Instagram when we <laughs> post about the episode. That way we know you made it to the end. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Woohoo.